farmers and friends, I'm Dan Miller. This is Agriculture in North Carolina, a program all about our state's largest industry, agriculture. On this week's program, my co-host Jeff Turner and I will ponder some headlines that are affecting farmers here in North Carolina. And in just a moment, we'll get up with state vet Dr. Mike Martin. He'll get us up to date on another commercial turkey flock infected with HPAI, highly pathogenic avian influenza. Ag and NC is made possible by Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Find links to those folks on our website, agandnc.com. Let me bring in my co-host, COO of Murphy Family Ventures and member of the North Carolina Board of Ag. Hey, Jeff Turner, how are things in Duplin County? i got to tell you, things in D.C. are in pretty good shape. A little bit of rain on Friday, clear cold. Hey, it warms up, it rains. It gets cold, it warms up, it rains, it gets cold. It's typical North <laughs> Carolina weather. That's the way it works. Hey, all my life this way was here. I, nothing's changed. I'm reminded by the commissioner every dry spells uh, followed by a rain, followed by a wet, wet spell. spell. Yeah, happens yeah, every yeah. time. See daffodils around. Won't be long. We'll start planting corn. I hope. You shot me a couple of emails this week. Let me talk about the uh, the thumbs up email first. Smithfield Foods elevated a friend of the program. He was the head of their renewable energy and sustainability department. His new position will put him as head of hog production for the world's largest pork producer, and that's Craig Westerby. i got to tell you, Craig is a good man. I'm a little partial. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, Craig, Craig and I worked together. He, he reported through my department for many, many years, and uh, when I left, he, uh, he kind of picked up uh, where I left off and uh, has done a remarkable job with the renewable piece and all of that, so I'm uh, very pleased. Uh, with their selection, and I know he'll do well. And uh, we look forward to talking to him sometime in the upcoming year. Smithfield's kind of gone through a bit of a, well, like everybody, right? They stand back and take a look at exactly where their place in the industry kind of fits, and for them, uh, a readjustment. They've hired a couple of uh, executive-level folks, and they ended 26 contracts with hog growers in Utah, led to layoffs and some position eliminations, also trimmed operations in Missouri and here in North Carolina last year. Yeah, you know, the hog industry, it's a cycle. Pricing is a cycle, the market value of hogs. And this particular cycle seems to have been a little bit uh, longer. The the valley has been a little little longer, Uh, maybe not as deep as some I have seen, but but a little longer than ones that that we've seen in the past. So uh, they did do some cutting. They closed a, a plant, the Farmer John plant in Los Angeles last year. And in doing so, obviously, that uh, requires fewer hogs on the extreme west coast. They have production facilities in Utah. When you close the plant, you don't need that supply any longer. And, again, it was all about high, the high cost of doing business in the, the great state of California. And they had to be influenced as well by Prop 12. No one has ever said that, but you know, I think it's probably one of those unspoken things that would make all the sense in the world to me. And again, the only reason that circle, what we called Circle Four in Utah, was built, they had pigs that stopped in Milford, Utah, on the way to Los Angeles, coming out of Midwest, and someone there said, you know, that really doesn't make sense. Why don't we grow those hogs here? And so that's how. Circle Four, the Utah operation, got started years ago. Those train loads of train car loads of pigs stopped coming from the from the Midwest. 
uh, they were shipped from Utah into to California. The train cars. You mean you, you don't rodeo and bring the pigs to to market and herd? Not any longer. <laughs> I guess you could have done that, but uh, but you know, again, for years and years, livestock cars. Uh, oh yeah. Have been in existence, and and that's what they stop there for watering and that sort of thing. And and someone said, well, we ought to be growing those here. You know, it's and kind so, of interesting because when I was a kid, I remember livestock train cars a lot, and I just don't, I can't say that I see them much anymore. At least where pigs are concerned, that was probably the last ones, and you know, still cattle shipped on train car. I would yeah. suspect. Hey, coming up on today's program, we have got another infection of a commercial turkey flock in North Carolina. We're going to get up with state veterinarian Mike Martin. I've asked you if you know what particular farm it is, and the answer is no. But is some of that the fact that when farmers supply information to the North Carolina veterinary labs, they do so in privacy? Yeah, there is an element of privacy, and I had a request this week from a, a, a news station. Can you get me in touch with folks to go? I wanted to go do a story, and the last thing, you know, the last thing oh you want golly. to do <laughs> is to to have folks again. This whole idea of, of biosecurity, whether it's a farm that doesn't have any problems, or a farm that may have problems, or a farm that does have problems. Again, the livestock and poultry industry practice a lot of what I will call good biosecurity practices that just totally defeats the purpose. When we talk about this with Dr. Martin today, I, I think he's going to say, and I want to reemphasize, that, that this is not transferable from the animal to human. It's got zero problem with regard to any threat to humans other than the fact that it is a threat to the meat supply. That's why it's so vitally important that we get, uh, you know, once it's detected, you tamp it down, you get rid of it. Well, coming up in a moment, we'll talk with state veterinarian Mike Martin. Bill Carone Cars in Wallace is the only GMC Chevy dealer. Strike that. Reverse it. Chevy GMC dealer in eastern Carolina to become an AgPak dealer, which means any farmer who buys a vehicle at Bill Carone is eligible for more than $30,000 in savings on products you probably already use, everything from tires to crop products. Check out the advantages of the AgPak program at Bill Carone Cars in Wallace or online at BillCaroneGM.com. This is Ag and NC. I'm Dan Miller. Jeff Turner and I are talking with state veterinarian Dr. Mike Martin. I say that. You you got us, don't you? Yes. Can you hear me? Okay? Hey, Dr. Martin. Jeff Turner here. How are you? Good, thank you, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, thank you. You, sir, are a busy man. Of course, uh, the veterinary department always is. Let's go right to uh, the biggest story, and that is commercial turkey operation in Duplin County is tested positive for high path avian influenza. And I think just a week prior to that, an operation in Lenore County. Where are we in those current situations? Yeah, so we identified at the, you know, a couple of weeks ago, as you mentioned, uh, a turkey farm, meat turkey farm, uh, that experienced a little bit of an increase in mortality out in uh, Lenore County. As such, we then did set up a control zone, as we always do with these cases, which is 10 kilometers out from the farm, and, and started testing people all around that area and uh, on a regular basis, routine basis. We always test immediately within about 24, 48 hours, and then we test per every five to seven days thereafter. We're always interested, especially interested in that first 14 days after we find our first case, 
because that's typically the incubation period for avian influenza. And so, you know, everybody locks down and gets really tight after that first positive case. But if there's any chance that it kind of spread around a little bit before we knew that that positive farm was positive, it's within that 14-day period. So um, that then led to the the case that was identified in, in Duplin County, which was caught within our surveillance testing. And so, again, we were just thankful we got it early in that situation. Now, that 14-day incubation period ended yesterday with a big round of testing. And so um, we're, we're happy that that occurred. We're not out of the woods completely, but that covers our testing for that incubation period, which is the highest risk period. You know, we're still doing regular testing on our ongoing basis, and we're still looking at now the control areas for both of those positive farms. But, but we feel a lot better after yesterday and, and uh, hoping that things just settle down. You may have said this, and I, I didn't hear it, but the second one, was it within your 10 clicks, or was it somewhere outside of that? Yeah, it was within the 10-kilometer zone. So, okay. you know, th- there's a lot of counties where the, the borders all get really close together there. Dr. Yeah. Martin, can you tell if they are the same strain? Yeah, so th- and that's a really excellent question. What, what we do is we send all of our samples off to the Net- National Veterinary Services Laboratory where they do further evaluation and assessment on them. They'll first confirm our testing. A lot of times it gets confusing. You'll see and hear things about, well, we have a non-negative, a non-negative here in North Carolina. That just means that we can't, like, officially confirm it until the national lab says, yeah, that, that's, that's what you got. But all they were able to identify in both of these farms is that we have the outbreak strain. And we kind of had known that because the PCR that we do in-house, there's multiple PCRs we do, but it tests for this outbreak strain. But the bigger question is, is there is any genetic analysis that can be done of this bug that would say, did this just kind of potentially get introduced around the same time wild birds are just like an incidental spread versus it being on a farm, incubating on a farm, and then spreading to another farm. And what they'll do is, is, is just sometimes you'll see where it, when it sits on a farm for a couple, two, three days, there'll be small mutations. And if those mutations then can be seen on both farms, then that's evidence of more of a, what they would call lateral spread, which would be it sat on a farm, incubated for a while, and then moved. Uh, back, if you guys might remember, in 2022, when we had our nine farms that tested positive, all the little mutations were different from all of the farms, which showed that it basically had hit us, boom, hard, and then uh, it kind of went away. And that's why that 14-day incubation period was so critical. It didn't really linger and spread from farm to farm and continue to kind of kind of fester on. It takes a while for us to get those results. Since this was caught within the incubation period, we're hoping that they'll basically be considered as a point source epidemic, either a wild bird in you know in the area hit both farms, or there might have been incidental spread at the very onset of the outbreak. But it'll take a little time for us to get that genetic sequencing back from the national lab. When you say 22, you're talking about the Wayne and Johnston County outbreaks? Yeah, exactly. That, that was in 2022 in March and April. We had uh, nine commercial farms, some turkey farms, and some broiler farms that tested positive for this outbreak strain. And this outbreak strain, is it's the largest outbreak we've had in the nation's history. It's been going on for over two years now. The first domestic birds were identified in Indiana 
uh, either late January or early February of 2022. And uh, it's just been rolling throughout the country. There's been only three states that had not gotten this virus, except for just this last week, where West Virginia, one of the three holdout states, actually fell to the virus. So now, you know, well, this is a nationwide outbreak. Only Hawaii and Louisiana have not felt the hit from this. Yeah, I wish I was one of them, them but uh, at this point in time, you know, we just unfortunately got hit again, as multiple states have, with this virus just circulating in these migratory birds. It sounds like you feel fairly comfortable they'll caught early, and so hopefully we've reduced the potential for additional spread. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, you know, hope is not a plan, but I do hope that these have been restricted to this, these two farm sites. I was really hopeful that we would just end up with the one farm site. But, you know, again, it wasn't a surprise to see that second farm come up within that 14 day period. So we are cautiously optimistic that we will get through this. We are continuing our surveillance. We are continuing to work with our national partners and industry on this. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are, you know, trying to get birds to processing in these control areas so that that way we can get them off the table so they're not at risk anymore. Uh, and just working a lot, again, with our national and state partners and as well as industry to try to just keep this as a two and done, hopefully. Jeff sent me a note a couple of days ago uh, from Ag Secretary Vilsack that the U.S. is closer to identifying a bird flu vaccine campaign to inoculate poultry flocks, however, likely to lead to maybe some thorny trade issues coming up. Have you heard yeah. about this? Absolutely. Yeah. So there there has been vaccines that have been developed in development, all stages of development, uh, some that have actually been already marketed internationally. And there is always a big push, you know, whether it be back in 2014, 2015, when we had the big national outbreak then, which didn't fortunately affect North Carolina, or from the beginning of this outbreak, all the way back to 2022, where people have been questioning the use of the vaccine. Trade does seem to be the big holdup. And, you know, some of it is based upon some science elements where if you use the vaccine, does that uh, it doesn't prevent against infection. It prevents against the severity of infection, although it minimizes the risks for infection. So are you creating typhoid Mary flocks, you know, just flocks that are hiding the virus? And then does it potentially interfere with your diagnostics? Is it going to mess up your testing if these flocks are, are vaccinated? So those are scientific arguments which people debate, right, and discuss, and things have gotten improved over time. So, you know, the question about whether it's scientifically valid or not becomes a harder, you know, reason to not vaccinate. However, there are lots of elements in trade where if you vaccinate for avian influenza, some countries may not accept your exports. And the United States, to add a further complication, we have not accepted imports associated with countries that do vaccinate with avian influenza. And so it opens up a lot of questions on both ends of the trade. If we start using it, do we then automatically have to accept trade from countries that we historically haven't? Or do we get trade restrictions from countries right now that are allowing us to trade? Those debates are kind of ongoing, and I think it's the political trade aspect of it that really seems to be the linchpin on, on the resistance for vaccination. We had back in, I want to say it was March of 2023, where the California condor population got hit in a month 
of uh, one month of mortality greater than the entire year previous to that. And this is like the poster child for endangered species. And the mortality was attributed vastly to highly pathogenic avian influenza. That led a lot of conversations between trade partners and such that allowed us as a country to look at the vaccination of California condor populations. And that included looking at first to determine safety at black vulture populations, just to use them as a surrogate species to make sure the vaccine would be safe to use in them. And so, you know, we in North Carolina have have actually had the fortune of of helping facilitate the black vulture safety portion of that vaccine use. And so far, the vaccine use there, as well as in condors now on the west coast of this country, has not affected trade. So there is some, you know, some elements of like, well, maybe there's some small movements here or there, but uh, I think we're still a long way off. Gentlemen, we're at a pause, so hang on for just a moment. We'll be right back on Agriculture in North Carolina. Our program is brought to you in part by Ag Carolina Farm Credit, financing rural North Carolina for generations, lending solutions for farms, land, homes, personalized for you. Ag Carolina Farm Credit, giving you room to grow. You're listening to Ag and NC. I'm Dan Miller, along with my co-host Jeff Turner. We're joined by state veterinarian Mike Martin talking about the HPIA situation in our state. Going back, if I could, do we know... Do we know that the infections in Lenore and Duplin were caused by migratory fowl? No, and I'm not a big betting man. I, I, I gamble for fun, so whatever I take to the casino, I expect to lose. <laughs> uh, but I would bet that this is going to be a wild bird origin isolate, just because that's the way it has been across the nation. That's what we got exposed to back in 2022. That's the cases that we are currently seeing across the nation, according to USDA. And so it's a very safe bet to assume that and then let the genetic sequencing prove us wrong. But it's, it's not definitive until we get that genetic sequencing. To track this virus in migratory wild birds is uh, USDA's wildlife services here locally test hunter-harvested birds in things like Hyde County, Pamlico County, those types of areas. And uh, mostly that's dabbling ducks. And we have definitely seen a bunch of cases in the last few months. We haven't seen anything for a while because they weren't, you know, there weren't hunter-harvested birds available to test. But now that we have these hunter-harvested birds that USDA Wildlife Services are testing, we're seeing a lot of these birds still being positive today. And we've, we've even had evidence of birds being tested in Wayne County relatively recently that tested positive for this outbreak strain, wild birds, that is. So we know this virus is out there in these wild bird populations and, and that's why it's a pretty safe guess to say that it came from wild birds to, to affect these farms. What would you say to producers right now, obviously, increased vigilance and biosecurity? Definitely increased vigilance and biosecurity. I would say that it doesn't matter what birds you own, whether they be commercial birds that you're owning as a contract grower uh, or just your own little you know, personal flock of birds that you have for your own personal use that the highest risk factor right now is wild birds and wild bird droppings and bringing that in on your clothes, on your shoes, on your hands, 
So it's always safe that when you're coming to your birds that you practice good biosecurity. If you can, clean clothes, designated shoes when you're around there are protective equipment, especially on the commercial side. People will be using protective coveralls, protective booties, that type of thing to make sure that you're not tracking that virus in. I think for the general public is that this is a avian virus. This is a poultry virus. There's no evidence right now that this is zoonotic, affecting people in any way, shape, or form. Food supplies are perfectly safe. Uh, we just need to get this out of our, our, our commercial populations, our domestic populations, so that it doesn't spread amongst commercial and domestic birds. If the wild bird population is a carrier, are we seeing an increase in mortality in the wild birds? Definitely we see in mortality in our domestic galliforms, our chickens, our turkeys, or things along those lines. In the wild birds, historically, it can affect them, but it might not affect them too much. But with this particular virus strain, we are seeing a greater percentage of these wild birds getting affected, getting sick, dying from the virus. It's still not huge. It's not like we're finding massive die-offs of dabbling ducks that are, that are going on. You know, So we're not seeing that. When there's species that are affected that are not ducks and geese, and the risk of mortality, morbidity, sickness, death goes really, really high. And so, for example, we've had big bird die-offs even of black vulture populations uh, where you can find one site where you'll pick up 200, 300 dead birds within a football field of each other and a, a black vulture flock. And so uh, bald eagles, although they don't have as quite as big a flock size and stuff, finding bald eagles here or there that are dead across the country has been a pretty prominent sign of this. So a lot of our raptor species are very susceptible to morbidity, mortality types of issues. Waterfowl, they definitely can be. We are seeing sick and dying birds. It is higher numbers than we have historically attributed to avian influenza viruses. This strain does seem to be that hot, but it's still not to the point where we're seeing just massive die-offs of birds on the waterfowl side. How much now that uh, our, our labs have improved and you, you mentioned that we're able to uh, test more readily for signature patterns of viruses, how much is AI making its way into uh, the NC laboratories? Yeah, so our testing is always really high because we have a kind of a joint collaborative program that we work with our national partners getting funding and resources to do routine testing through the National Poultry Improvement Plan, uh, which is a plan that we basically are testing in times of peace. We are testing all meat production flocks prior to them going to the processing plant. And those samples are coming through our lab. And so we've got a lot of birds on the ground here in North Carolina. It's a lot of testing that our labs do constantly. Um, and then we also have testing that just happens for routine morbidity mortality things that take place on a regular basis. We have movement testing that often will take place, testing for avian influenza. We are doing testing for backyard independent flocks, especially if they're going to, they're part of the MPIP program, National Poultry Improvement Plan, or they're going to fairs or shows across the state. And so like the state fair and the mountain state fair, we're testing all those birds for avian influenza. And this is in times of peace when we're not having any issues at all. So all the testing that we're doing right now, it's a lot of testing where we ramp up and test these control areas. But compared to our routine testing we do in the state, it's not a big amount 
compared to that overall background testing. Uh, not just poultry. Obviously, you guys test livestock. Oh, yeah. The labs test all sorts of different animal species. And, you know, typically we're not testing, you know, them for influenza viruses, although uh, we can for their own, you know, like canine influenza for dogs and equine influenza for, for horses and such. Uh, and But, you know, this virus has been a little bit odd that we have a lot of scavenger species like foxes and bears and things like that that across the nation, raccoons that have tested positive for this avian influenza virus as they're eating sick and dying and dead birds, you know, having that intimate contact. So uh, we have had a couple mammals test positive for this. They have been two American black bears throughout the last couple of years that have tested positive. Influenza testing is very, very common. It's expanding out into mammals. We don't do the mammal side of avian influenza testing, but we do help facilitate you know, testing for influenza of other animals based upon their specific influenzas, like canine influenza. For all those uh, pet owners who have a dog or cat who bring a dead bird to the back porch, you've not seen any of that transfer yeah. virus from bird to uh, to a household pet? No, we have not seen anything that I've heard reported either nationwide or in the state of dogs or cats getting avian influenza from, from birds. However, across the years, I've definitely seen that they're finding sick or dead birds, and usually these are not like the big waterfowl things. They're they're kind of like the more of our songbirds, the passeriforms, little sparrows and finches and things like that. The bigger risk there is salmonella, and I, and I have over the years seen some you know small percentage of cases, very small percentage of cases of dogs and or cats finding a sick or a dead bird, a little wild songbird, and getting a salmonella disease infection. So people should always be really careful about their, their animals picking up dead birds uh, just in general, but I, I'm not particularly concerned about them getting avian influenza from them. Songbirds have not been really identified heavily as having avian influenza in this outbreak. State veterinarian Dr. Mike Martin, thank you, sir. Appreciate the time, as always, guys, to be able to talk to you and talk to your audience. Thank you, Dr. Martin. Thank you, gentlemen. Take care. That we will. Coming up in a moment, more Ag and NC. Programs brought to you in part by the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, Got to Be NC, North Carolina's official business development and marketing program for agriculture. More than agriculture, it's got to be NC.com. Ag and NC says a big thanks to April and BG at Farmers Connection. If you've not put a copy of Farmer's Connection in your hand, I highly recommend it. Farmer's Connection is a newsprint magazine with information and ads from dealers and suppliers right here in North Carolina. Find used equipment prices and information from dealers like Mark Chesson and Sons, Caps Trailer in Dover, Bell Gray Pickerhead Repair in Cresswell, Southern Equipment in Goldsboro and Williamston, and Premier Equipment in Rocky Mount, Enfield, Washington, and Aden. And check out the latest auction schedule, including our buddy Jason Acock. The Farmer's Connection, online and available at independent farm equipment dealers all over North Carolina. Now let's check last week's commodity prices. North Carolina egg prices were steady on small, lower on the balance when compared to last week. Supplies were available to meet a fairly good demand. The North Carolina weighted average price quoted Thursday, February 22nd for small lot sales of delivered carton grade A eggs was 337.79 for extra large, 334.82 for large, 230.87 for medium and 152 for small eggs. Number 2 yellow shelled corn was 10 to 12 cents lower when compared to the prior week. Prices range mostly 396 to 494 at the feed mills and 381 to 494 at the elevators through Thursday, February the 22nd. 
Number one yellow soybeans were 14 cents lower to two cents higher. Ranged 11.53 to 12.24 at the processors, mostly 10.63 to 11.69 at the elevators. Number two red winter wheat was 6 to 14 cents lower, range 5.31 to 5.58 at the elevators. That's this week's Ag and NC. Subscribe to the longer free podcast version on Apple or Spotify or download the IBX Media app. Thanks to Ag Carolina Farm Credit, first choice insurance partners in the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Ag and NC is a production of Interbanks Media, copyright 2024. To advertise on the broadcast version or the statewide podcast, head to our website, agandnc.com. For Jeff Turner, myself, Dan Miller, make it a great week. 